Our second reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesize. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesize. For the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Now brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as a flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know it is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter a speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know it is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of a language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praises with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgivings when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The word of the Lord. You may have noticed this. I, it's something I've noticed is rich and famous people. Rich and famous people are experts at everything. You just need to ask them. And you find this in some people who become uh, successful in one area and then assume it translates into every other area as well. Um, now, th- this, this gentleman is, is sort of a brilliant savant, uh, Elon Musk. Like, he started PayPal, and, and therefore, because he started PayPal, was a founder in PayPal, he also knows how to do space travel and battery-powered cars and boring underground at high speed. You're like, you, you've got to be good at everything when you know how to do one thing, right? And, and many of you don't know this because you're too young, but there have been multiple, multiple presidential candidates through the years who have come from success in other areas. So incredibly successful businessmen or real estate moguls or financial brokers. And because they're successful in one aspect of life, they run a company or they, they've you know, been really successful in finance, obviously they're the one that should run the entire country. And it's a, it's a way that we think, and I'm not just actually criticizing them, that actually all of us think. The more success we have in any one area, the more we assume it translates into every other area, and therefore we're an expert on everything. If you are a social media influencer with tens of millions of followers, you probably have everything right when it comes to parenting and international diplomacy. And you should tell everyone what they should do too. So the warning for us is if you are particularly talented or successful 
it's possible, it's possible that you and I might overestimate ourself in other areas. And this is the, you know, say the, the, uh, the flip side of it, or not flip side, another way of approaching this way of thinking is the hammer nail thing, right? If you have a hammer, everything around you is a nail. And so you, you figure like, I, I'm good at this and everyone needs this, or this is important to me, therefore it should be important to everyone else. If we are good at something in particular or something is particularly vital to us and our identity, then it's a main thing and it should be important to everyone. And you see this especially in, in the love languages. Some of you know that book that came out a couple decades ago about the five languages of love. And the idea behind it was that every person gives and receives love in different ways. So it's, uh, it's gifts or it's words of encouragement, or it's quality time. There's, a, there's five of them. And everyone wants to receive love in a certain way, and they tend to give it in another way. Now, the problem is, and this is where friendships or marriages can often break down, is that you may have a particular way that you want to receive love, and so you assume everybody else wants that too. And so you, you love gifts, and so therefore you buy gifts for people. But one of your close friends d- really cares, could care less about a gift. They just want quality time. So you're constantly buying them gifts, and they're like, could we just spend some time together? That assumption, the assumption that what we know, what we're good at, how we feel, is what's important and the only thing, is a a way of reading some of what was going on in Corinth in chapter 14. There were divisions within the church related to uh, religious expression and how people in particular expressed their religion, their spirituality, and others did not. And Paul goes on to press the point um, that we'll get to through this morning, that faith and our expressions of faith, our faith is not a solo sport. All the gifts that we have, all that God has given us and how he has wired us, is because we are meant to be a gift for others. We are called into community And that's how we are called to live out everything. So let me read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 14 to get the the thrust of the issue that Paul is talking about. Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. So the spiritual problem is is right there before you, and it's one that for some of you, you've read about, you know about. Others of you, this is going to be some brand new stuff. I'll do my best to wade into it in a way that makes sense of it as best as I can. Um... But the spiritual problem there was that a certain segment of the church in Corinth was elevating this spiritual gift called speaking in tongues or praying in tongues. And because they expressed this spiritual gift, they held higher status in the church, or they felt like they held higher status. And the result was they were alienating others. They were alienating people within the community that did not express their religion in the same way. It was breaking down community unity. They were not being loving with the very things God had given them. And Paul lays out in our passage here that prophecy is better than speaking in tongues. And he gives the why, and the why is the helpful insight into what Paul is after. It's because 
when somebody prophesies in the way that it's being defined here, the message is understood and results in people being built up, encouraged, consoled. And that's why Paul concludes the section that we read at least in verse 18 and 19, he, he writes, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church with others, when we're gathered, when people are together, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. And at this point, I probably need to pause and explain some of these terms. Some of you, again, like I said, are very familiar with these things or come from traditions where things like the word tongues or prophecy are very normative, and others of you come from traditions where you've never heard of it. Um, but it, let, let me read, it, just specifically talking about tongues or speaking in tongues, how does Paul give us some insight into what it is? And he doesn't give us much, but we know from other passages and some of what's said here. But let me just read two of the verses, verse 2 and verse 14. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. And then verse 14, for if I pray in tongues, my spirit prays, but my mind is fruit unfruitful. And the definition that the, the scholars as well as Christians throughout the years have put on it and reading here and also reading back into Acts when Pentecost happened and the people walked around speaking in foreign languages that other people understood at that time and they were praising God is what it's described. They were declaring the glories of God is that, that it is a spirit-inspired praise of God in a language that is unknown to the prayer. Tongues, speaking in tongues, praying in tongues is a spirit-inspired praise of God in a language unknown to the prayer. And those of you who have been familiar with it know that it, it sounds, actually if you hear it, it sounds like a foreign language. Um, I do not speak German and I do not speak Spanish, but I can tell the difference between the two of those, right? There are ways of pronouncing things, there's a rhythm to it, um, French, for, inch, for instance, has this rhythm that's sort of uh, melodic and beautiful. Italian sort of has a dance to it. German sounds angry. And you know it when you hear it. Come and see here, bitte, Fräulein. My darling, come closer. So speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, is praying, giving praise to God in a language unknown, but it has cohesion, it has coherence. And I can align with some of what Paul talks about here when he says, I speak in tongues more than all of you, but I would rather say five words. I would rather say a phrase, a phrase in English than 20,000 pages in a tongue. Now, I'm going to kind of let you in on my story a little bit. I have actually prayed in tongues for more than four decades, almost four decades. It's been a part of my spiritual journey. But I also can align with Paul because the people he's critiquing were who I was at one point. There was a time in my life going back 25, 30 years when I assumed that if you did not do what I was doing in my prayer life, that you were missing out on what God was offering you and you were less of a spiritual person than me. 
I truly have the fullness of the Spirit of God, and you, my other Christian friends, do not. In fact, I'm not even sure you're a Christian. And so I would try to force it on other people. Or, in a sense, feel like they're, they're not, they don't really get God. God was merciful to me, and so were friends who I pushed a little hard sometimes. And over the course of time, reading scripture and theology and trying to understand it a little bit better, um, it actually brought down, corrected my over-elevation of tongues. It constrained me from trying to force it on others, as it should have, right? (laughs) And it helped me to see that every believer in Christ has the fullness of the Spirit. The Bible is clear on that. You can't have less of the Holy Spirit. You come to faith in Christ by repenting and putting your trust in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, you may have experiences or ways of expressing that that grow or change over time or ramp up or pull down, but you don't have less of the Holy Spirit any different today than I did, you know, decades ago when I came to faith in Christ. It's just we express it differently. And prayer for me now is multifaceted, actually. So prayer for me now involves that basic making requests to God, like, hey, here's a friend of mine in need. Can you heal them or can you help them or give them guidance or watch over her? Or, you know, praying for a meeting or an event or something coming up, just praying to God, asking for things. But my prayer life also involves something that that is simply my thoughts with God present in them. Do you know you have an inner dialogue all the time? Meditation in Christianity is focusing on scripture or on God and bringing your thoughts and mind to bear on him. So a lot of my prayer life is actually just thought life oriented to God and God present in my thoughts and meditations and daydreams, if you would. I do also pray in tongues. And I love using prayers that are written by somebody else. And so I will pray with the Book of Common Prayer prayers that are 500 to 3,000 years old. Praying through the Psalms, praying through Scripture. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, you have brought us safely to the beginning of this day. Defend us by your mighty power. Heavenly Father, in you we live and move and have our being. We humbly pray you so to guide and govern us by your Holy Spirit. And I make those prayers my prayer. So rather than saying, this is the way you have to do it, I've even found that in my own life, I can step into tradition and personal and borrowing different ways of praying that have really deepened and widened the way that I can walk with God all the time. Not that I walk with God all the time, but there's different ways you can do it. And you may have certain ways you've done it, and that's okay. And God may want to open you up to new ones as well. The point is this. Commune with God. He wants you to know him in whatever way does work for you. And that does involve your heart and your soul and your emotion and your mind as the Spirit of God works through those. And so what I'm suggesting is, I do actually think that 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 this whole praying in tongues is a legitimate, and Paul seems to lay it out there, form of Christian prayer and praising God. But, but, not everyone needs to step into that. And some of you are just going to realize that 
your, your, literally your wiring and your background have a huge impact on how God speaks to you and moves in your life. Do you come from charismatic and Pentecostal circles? or from Catholic circles, or from Presbyterian circles, or from Baptist circles, or from no church background. It will affect how you step into things. Even your, your makeup as a person, are you um, emotional, kingdom, king's dominion sort of roller coaster, or are you more like that rock that people trip on that doesn't ever move? Is your emotion line like this, or is it like this? Do you tend to be uh, a feeler or a thinker? And everyone's a feeler and a thinker, right? God wants to work with you. You're not needing to be made into something that you're not. And so, think about two things. When the disciples ask Jesus how to pray, what does he say? Jesus probably had the Spirit with him, right? But he gives us a written prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. And whether that's a form or something you're supposed to just pray. And yet Paul, later on, says, I thank God that I speak tongues more than all of you. So it seems like both are present. And my guess is certain people are going to be moved, drawn to God, built up, built up by different ones. The issue is this. What is most loving and beneficial to others and builds up community? And for a good decade plus, I did not do that very well. Paul says what builds up is actually prophecy. In verses 3 through 5, I'm going to reread this just to get a sense of it. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. So in the generation or the decade that followed me, you know, kind of trying to push this one aspect of my spiritual life on others, I moved into the next movement that Paul talked about, which is prophecy. So prophecy, according to the way that Paul defines it, well, actually, he doesn't really define it. Okay, and in the Bible, in the New Testament, I wouldn't be overly uh, narrow in how I would define it. But one thing it is not in the New Testament, really, is future-telling. Nor is it necessarily spontaneous and sudden, although that's not excluded. Rather, as most of the scholars reading this and other ones, and as you read through the different scriptures on this, would suggest that prophecy is used here is a message that is understood that builds up and encourages people. In verse 24 and 25, Paul says prophecy can even be used for people who don't believe in God because it convicts them of their sin, calls them to account before God so that they end up falling on their face and worshiping God. One New Testament writer who was kind of surveying everything that's out there on this said, basically, here's what we see uh, about the word prophecy and the way it's used by Paul here is, it is a message that moves people to repent and believe in Christ or to apply the gospel, bringing scripture and the gospel truth of Jesus Christ to bear on their present life. And this aligns with the one prophet we know very clearly in the New Testament, who is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet. What did he do? He went around and told people, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. People felt convicted of their sin, repented, and put their trust in God anew. 
Some scholars, and actually a lot of them, would say that certain styles of preaching, like what I'm doing right now, is prophecy. And that was what I moved into. Instead of forcing like everyone should pray to God the way I do, I thought, I'm gifted with prophecy. That's my preaching style. I'm not a comforter with my preaching. I have truth, and you need it. And a little bit of seminary and a little bit of speaking ability made me a prophet ready for an audience. I was ready to convict people, challenge Christians, make them cry, so that they would change, because God had gifted me as a prophet. I was a hammer, and everyone was a nail. And what if I offended people? Well, that's their problem. I mean, truth hurts, baby. So while Paul was trying to move the, the church in Corinth from overemphasizing this certain spiritual expression and saying, look, it's better to speak words that, can, that people can understand in the community, the whole point of it was lost on me. I think if Paul was writing a letter to our church today, it would not be First Christ Church Viennians, it would be First Johnny and Second Johnny and Third Johnny. Like, hey, you, you, this is, uh. Let's go back to the Holy Spirit. Because I think this gives us some insight. What God is doing in the Holy Spirit gives us some insight in what Paul wants us to see and what maybe can lead us forward. In Joel chapter 2, Verse 28, this is a couple hundred years before Jesus. Joel the prophet says, and it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men dream dreams, and your young men see visions. Now we've walked through this a number of times in this church, but let me do it one more time. At the time of Joel, several hundred years before Jesus, the presence of God was a very important thing, and they were feeling the lack of the presence of God. So the presence of God is a theme throughout scripture. In Genesis, in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, the spirit of God, God is present with his people. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. He is physically present with them. But in the fall and sin, they, they get pushed out of the garden, driven from the presence of God. But God shows up several hundred years later through his people, the people of Israel. And he dwells with them in a tabernacle and later a temple, in a building. You want God, come to Israel, to this place, and offer your worship and sacrifices here. This is where God is present. But by the time of the prophets, they were looking forward to a day when God would come to be present with them and pour out his presence on or in all people. And then Jesus arrives in a way that they didn't fully expect. God enfleshed. God saying, I'm here with you locally. You can come and shake my hand, hug me, eat with me. And then when he is crucified, risen, and ascends, some days afterwards, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that was there in the garden, there in the temple, physically present in Jesus, falls on every believer. That's what God was up to. He is moving from Eden to the fall, to the temple, to Jesus, to restoring us back to that place before the fall. God gives his Holy Spirit as an anticipation of eternity. He dwells in and with you 
and one day you will be with God face to face and he will be all in all. And at this time, God is using his spirit in you to bring his kingdom presence to the world around us. His intention is to rule and reign. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. One day, all wrongs will be righted, all tears wiped away. Death will be no more because God will be fully present. Now is not yet that time. Now, you and I are God God's representative locally. God has taken up residence in you until that time when he takes up residence everywhere. And that means you and I are the means of God's reign spreading. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is given for a number of reasons. It is given to convict us of our sin. If you ever feel guilty, it's probably the Holy Spirit. It enables faith. You don't come to faith in Christ purely by your ration or emotion alone. It is the Spirit of God that enables faith. And the Spirit of God assures you when you feel guilty after confessing, later on you're not sure. It, God assures you through his Spirit in you saying you are a child of God. It is the Spirit of God in you that leads you and guides you and gifts you and empowers you for faith and life. But the Spirit of God has been given to you, not for you. Or not just for you. That's why Paul says in verse 12, sort of a summary of what he's after. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Six, seven, eight different times in this chapter, Paul talks about building up the church. And the, he, he uses these two words, uh, oiko dome and oiko domeo. So oikos is house, and dome, domeo is build. So it's build up, edify, grow, depending on the context. And it literally means constructing a house. And it's interesting how in the New Testament, two ways of describing the church, the local church, not like every church everywhere, but a local church is a house or a building. Earlier in this, in this book, in this letter, Paul says you collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit, a building where God dwells. You collectively are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And there's a word that's similar to this one that means household that Paul also uses a bunch in the New Testament in Ephesians and 1 Timothy. And it basically is, you are the house of God, and you are the household of God. The household means a family. So you're both the building and the people inside of it. Because the Spirit is in you. And you're called to build up the family. Build up the house. To construct. In 1 Peter, Paul talks about how each of us is a living stone being built as a spiritual house. I mean, think about that imagery. We are, you're not just one stone, but you're a stone that, that sits on others and helps hold up others so that there can be a whole household, a whole house, I mean. And in Ephesians, Paul talks about, he, he mixes his metaphors, talking about the body of Christ, and each part has a role to play so that the body grows up, so that it 
builds itself up in love. And it's basically an organic and biological way of talking about building up that you would grow into maturity, but you need to all play your part. I need to play my part so that we build each other up, so that we grow, so that we get healthy. We need each other like stones on a wall. We need each other like the parts of the body that help us to grow into fullness and strength. Paul's point is your faith is not a private matter. There is no such thing as solo Christianity. We might know that in theory, but most of us, because we are Americans, because we're individualistic, because we don't want anybody to have a say, I mean, think about how do you decide what you believe? Do you bring everything you believe before others? Do you read widely? Do you think through history? Do you understand how, do we bring any of our thoughts before others? Or do we decide them internally? How we live, what's right, what I can get away with, what I'm allowed to do, what God is calling me to. We tend to operate as solo Christians, and Paul is saying, no. (laughs) The aim of any gifting of yours, of any talent of yours, of your very life, of your faith and life, is not for you. You are made for this wider community called your church, your community. You are made for relationships. And the fullness of your life and the fullness of even knowing God depends on, requires relational connection and upbuilding together. C.S. Lewis has that famous, famous description in The Four Loves about how when his, one of his friends died, he was in a close circle of friends that used to get together at the pub regularly, and they would talk through uh, theology and philosophy and literature, and they were best friends. And anytime one of them wrote something, they would share it with another. One of his friends died, and he said, what was interesting about my friend dying was not that now that instead of just four of us, there was three, I had more of the other guys, but rather I had less of them without that one guy present. He, he says it a little better, so let me just read it. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Now that my friend Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away or gone, I have less of Ronald. You and I are made for relationships. Want to be, do you want to be who you were fully made to be, life to the full, the fullness of of the you that's you? Give yourself to others in deep and wide relationships. And I think this is even giving us a hint that if you want to experience God more fully, you need to give yourself to relationships. and See how God meets and speaks through others and trust that he can. The point that Paul is getting at is not whether you prophesy or whether you speak in tongues or whether those things are never a part of your life. It's that you are meant to be in a community and your calling is to build up, to benefit, to use your giftings, and to not constantly put barriers up or decide who's in and who's out. You know, I have a, I've had, I've had a distaste and cynicism for a couple of things. 
angry evangelists, the ones that show up on your college campus, those of you who went to college and saw the people with the signs yelling at, at the college students as they went by. And I was standing there next to some non-Christians saying, this is why I'll never believe in Christianity. I was like, would this guy just stop? I, I have a negative view of certain uh, types of ministry, campus ministries that I saw that were overly aggressive in my opinion and not very relational. I, I have a cynicism or have had a cynicism of celebrity Christians. Um, you know, Kanye West, right? Rapper and famous for many other things besides being married to Kim Kardashian came out with an album recently called Jesus is King. It's a rap gospel album about his faith, and he's now leading Sunday services at the Forum in L.A. where the Lakers play. He, he goes to these 10,000, 20,000 play, and he sells them out. You have to buy tickets, and he's running a church service, and there's sermon, and there's all this stuff. Kanye West, and I'm like, and yet, and yet I know of a man who about 50 years ago was walking along the campus and he heard one of these street corner evangelists yelling and he thought, I, I'm, I'm really annoyed and angry with this guy. And then the next day he walked by again and eventually something in him said, go talk to this guy. So he went and talked to the guy and sat down with him. And through that street corner evangelist yelling at him, this Jewish college student came to faith in Christ. And then years later, Lon Solomon planted McLean Bible Church and led many people to grow in their faith. I have another friend whose son recently headed off to college, but the kid grew up in the church, but by the time he was later in high school, he, had, he was done with Christianity, done with the church. But his dad and, and mom encouraged him, hey, as you go off to college, you've been a part of things like youth group and all. I know you're sort of done with it, but can you at least give it a try? It's a way to get to know other people. And so reluctantly, I think probably at first, he, he joined one of these campus ministries or at least decided he would try it for a semester. And it was one of the ones I would have been like, that's a pretty aggressive one. That's one of the ones you stay away from. But he ended up going on their fall weekend and it transformed his life. And two days later, he was up late at night watching a two-hour YouTube video of a church service put on by Kanye West. And in tears, in tears, he's texting his dad. Dad, you've got to watch this, this Sunday service by Kanye West. It's amazing. I can't believe the thing. I, I think I've come to faith in Christ again. <laughs> I finally believe in Jesus, and I can't stop crying, and I'm so excited. Thank you, Dad, for not giving up on me and my faith. An aggressive college ministry and Kanye West. I'm not saying you should go and listen to Jesus is King, the album, but I'm not saying you shouldn't either actually pretty good. I may have listened to it. It's actually really good. Sorry. <laughs> My point in all of this is that with all of these things that can be dividing between us, we need a lot of humility and grace. The humility and grace to recognize that we are all saved by grace because of Jesus Christ. The humility to have generosity with others whose expressions of faith differ from ours, whose traditions are different than ours, that we can learn from, and the love to say, I care about you, and I want you to grow in your faith. And I'm here to surrender my rights to love you. 
God will use whom he will. The street corner evangelist, Kanye West, you, me. But God wants to use you. He has made you and gifted you and sent his spirit into you so that you can be a gift to others. He calls us to be faithful and loving, but never to be alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful for your spirit's presence in this place and in the hearts and minds of all who have put their trust in Jesus. Teach us, Lord, to walk in your ways, to live into the fullness of the life you have called us to, to give ourselves deeper into relationships of love and commitment, and to pour out our lives for the building up and love of others. For your kingdom and your glory, amen.